Valley Talk. I'm your host, Heather Stark, and with me is a very special guest. We have our 45th rep, one of our 45th representatives, uh, district representatives, uh, with us in the, in the studio, uh, Roger Goodman. Welcome. Thank you very much, Heather. It's good to be with you. I'm so glad to have this opportunity. You know, this time, you know, right at this time, we have so much going on, and I think it's easy to feel disconnected even from your neighbors, let alone from your representatives and and your government. So let me, just before we start diving into all of that, let me just give a little brief bio for those who are not familiar with you. Um, You are a Kirkland resident, but you have been our representative. You are a Harvard man, yay, and you went to um, George Washington University for your uh, law degree. Dartmouth, a lot of real impressive names there, and there's also uh, the University of with Watersrand, am it's, I saying it correctly? Right Watersrand, in South Africa. Yes. Yeah, right. yeah. So, what brought you there? Uh, while I was at an undergrad at Dartmouth, I uh, we all do the junior year abroad, right? And so, instead of going to France or Italy or Mexico, I decided to go to South Africa. And it was during the apartheid regime. It was very interesting to study down there. Well, yeah, interesting times. Yeah. Well, you obviously are an attorney. We talked about your um, law degree from George Washington University. You have also um, been with the, the uh, criminal justice policy consultant with the King County Bar Association. You were the ED at the Washington State Sentencing Guidelines Commission. Last, I won't go through the whole list because there's so much in it, so impressive. What led you to pursue politics? Well, uh, my father was a political science professor uh, at Brown University. I, I grew up in New England, and uh, our dinner table conversations every night were about, and I was the youngest of three, so I had to keep up with the conversation. It was about uh, public affairs and international relations and, and politics and political theory and all of that, so I, I kind of couldn't help it. I grew up in an environment uh, where uh, politics was sort of our, you know, daily life. And uh, just was fascinated by it, too, because it's really politics is sort of the art of getting people to do things through the use of language and uh, also, you know, bringing people together to accomplish things. And uh, it always interested me. So politics has really been part of my life from the very beginning. You were inundated I mean, I guess, with it. Uh, in in, yeah, in high yeah. school, I, I realized language was important, and so I studied language. I studied uh, Sanskrit and ancient Greek and Latin uh, to, to learn about the roots of our language, and then studied German and French and Italian and Spanish and English, of course. And so I really tried to master as much as I could because that's uh, you know a tool we have. Um, uh, to persuade or, uh, you know, to you know, to communicate with one another. And uh, and then in college, you know, really focused on policy areas, environmental policy and uh, in particular, because my passion, my real passion is to make sure the planet is sustainable for humans, which is it's not looking very good at the moment. Uh, and uh, so I, and I retain that uh, area of interest. Law school, I focused on uh, environmental law. Um, but uh, fell into the criminal justice space uh, after graduate school uh, when uh, it was sort of an interesting time when the war on drugs was raging and we were beginning sort of mass incarceration and learned a lot about the criminal process and sentencing. So I've been in, in the criminal justice world for about 20, 25 years now. 
Well, and I see you were named uh, Legislator of the Year for 2019 from the Washington Council of Police and Sheriffs, and then the year before, you got Legislator of the Year from the Washington State Fraternal Order of Police. So you, you've got your bona fides, as they say here. Um, interesting to me, you know, as, as the person who's going to ask you know, the questions, this is a time where um, there's an interesting relationship with police and the public and uh, police and the legislation, legislators. Uh, how does your view, and having had a close relationship with police, obviously very well respected, what, how are you feeling about all this that's going on? Well, I reacted with horror, like everyone else should have, at the recent killing of uh, George Floyd and the uh, circumstances around Breonna Taylor in Louisville, and then the most recent uh, shooting somebody in the back uh, in, uh, in Atlanta. Uh, you know, these, these uh, incidents... Uh, are not isolated. It's part of a, a long pattern of uh, police misconduct. Uh, so we have to sort of separate um, the uh, the police misconduct from the the role of policing in general in our society, um, each of which really need a lot of examination. Um, I have a good relationship with uh, police organizations in this state, but also have maintained a very good relationship and have brought together police with community organizations, particularly from underrepresented communities, um, to make peace a little bit. We've done fairly well in Washington. We have a lot of unfinished business, a lot more work to do. But we have improved the law here um, to hold police accountable for use of force uh, that results in death. We have improved training. Uh, we have independent investigations of uh, incidents that take place. Uh, but it's so far, um, we, it's, I guess, half measures. We really have a lot more work to do, particularly in, in view of recent events, uh, the way the protests were handled and some other questionable uh, police-involved shootings uh, recently. Um, so my relationship with the police and my relationship with these uh, community groups and with youth groups and with scholars and researchers uh, continues. Uh, I want to strengthen those relationships so that we can continue to make progress. I'm having meetings uh, right now. I mean, literally, these these weeks and these days, I'm convening meetings of uh, community advocates and uh, police organizations uh, and youth groups um, to sort of, uh, I, I want to listen, uh, and then a concrete legislative agenda is going to develop out of this. We have a, a lot of things we're going to be doing uh, coming up in the next legislative session. Uh, related to police-community mm -hmm. relations and police accountability. You use the term the role of policing in society. Um, do you, and, and obviously downtown Seattle is mostly what we're talking about right here, we've been very fortunate in some of the outlying areas to not have to be making these same decisions and facing the exact same thing, although everybody's pretty on edge that are we going to be? We just don't know. Um, but the role of policing in society, it seems to me, as just an observer with what's happening in downtown Seattle, that role is changing, and I don't know how, it, how it's, how, how it's going to look. Um, I was shocked, and, and I don't want to make it a political discussion or a Black Lives Matter discussion, I, you know, because, I mean, you know, I don't want to go there. Just the idea, though, that a, a city police precinct was shut down. That's really yeah. different. I, can't, I cannot think of a time in history where I would have seen that before. So yeah. that what you, meant, what you call the role of policing, that, that's very different. Um, do you it have is, any thoughts uh, I, on that? Yeah, so I guess a couple of thoughts. One is 
the modern conception of police uh, in the Anglo-American world, uh, at least, goes back to the 1830s. Sir Robert Peel, uh, who sort of wrote the treatise and developed uh, the original protocols for how the constable uh, would operate in the community uh, in more of a urbanized uh, settings in England. Uh, and the constable, you know, the constabulary, they were there to make sure that uh, everything was calm and peaceful. And if you needed assistance, you would ask uh, the constable for help. And there were certain rules about how he would behave. Well, fast forward to recent decades, and we've had the war on drugs, which was just an, an assault by law enforcement on the community, a very adversarial relationship, uh, which is unfortunate because law enforcement was put in a very difficult situation of enforcing unworkable uh, drug laws, which have its own uh, racist uh, roots. Uh, and so the legacy of the war on drugs uh, lives with us today, with this adversarial relationship with the police and the community, where the police are more warriors than they are guardians. I like to think of them as sort of guardians, not just of the community, but guardians of democracy itself. Uh, and we need to get back to that, where the, the police are guardians, and they're not so much law enforcement officers, but what we call peace officers. As a matter of fact, the statute in this state uh, calls them peace officers. And so we kind of really need to reframe it and think of, of uh, the police as peace officers. And the new recruits get it. They, they have a, a sense of justice. They're millennials. You know, they, they have a sense of justice that's different from the old guard. Uh, and I think we're moving in the right direction, but again, we have more work to do. As far as uh, shutting down police precincts or what they say, defunding the police, it's a very provocative phrase. Uh, I like to think of it as reimagining public safety, where police have a, an important role to play to preserve uh, order and to hold accountable those who are doing harm to others and who are truly antisocial or, or causing public disorder. But we've asked the police to solve a lot of other problems, homelessness, mental illness, um, uh, racism itself. Uh, and so this defunding the police concept, which, again, sounds pretty extreme, is really about figuring out where should we devote our resources toward behavioral health care, towards housing, towards education, towards community organizations, towards youth supports. Um, and some of that might mean diverting resources away from what could be considered wasteful police practices, uh, military equipment and, and so forth, and maybe even the over-policing of some neighborhoods. So we're kind of at a revolutionary moment uh, with a lot of opportunity here, but we're not going to achieve change, or at least I don't want to achieve change at, at the expense of one community over another. I, I want to try to reach consensus, and that's what I've been doing in the last few years to bring police together with communities to come to agreement on policy changes. Well, as you point out, it is an interesting time. There's really uh, almost a, a, a major shift uh, going on. It's been going on for so long, not just with police, but with all sorts of different um, uh, areas of our society where we are asking more and more and more. We are asking them to understand more and to work with more and to do more and to be responsible for more. And uh, when you're talking about the police being asked for such things, I mean, when I was a kid, which was, you know, granted 110 years ago, uh, 
um, you know, I mean, you had a police officer and they took care of the car wrecks and, you know, on the rare occasion, of course, I grew up small town and on the rare occasions you had some, somebody that overdrank or somebody who got decided that something else that they shouldn't have belonged to them or whatever. That was what they took care of. And in my own time, they've gone to, as you said, the war on drugs, the, the more, you know, uh, I, I work a lot with domestic violence field and, you know, 30 years ago, police officers were uneducated about that and they would just go and assume it was an anger or an alcohol issue and they'd walk the guy and then send him back home, blah, blah, blah. And over those years, as we've had more and more research, now now officers are are expected to understand the dynamic of domestic violence and react accordingly. Yeah. And you know, the yeah. additional stuff has been stacked on them left and right. Yeah. And again, yeah. no. not just that field, but other fields as well. You know, teachers, yeah. I mean, you name it. Um, we're asking so them to maybe be behavioral health professionals. We're asking them to be social workers. We're asking them to be counselors. We're, you know, and... And I hear a lot from sheriffs and police chiefs. You know, you're you're asking us to solve all these problems, and and uh, you know we need help. And so it, it is. Uh, I, I do want to say though that if I see that blue flashing light in my rearview mirror, my heart starts to race. You know, like oh, I'm in trouble. What, <laughs> what do they want? But imagine so much for officer friendly. We all see that light behind us, and we immediately take our foot off the gas. I had an interesting experience this weekend. I went down to Astoria in Oregon, and I was going down a little side trail heading toward a state park, and I saw all of a sudden, boom, red and light flashing. And I'm I'm looking immediately, foot off the gas. I'm looking ahead of me, going, I don't see a police. Where's the car? And I realized that they had one of the uh, automatic, you're driving too fast signs, you know, you're going 28 yeah. and a 26 mile, you know, 25 mile. Per. And what they had done is instead of just the yellow light, they put the police red and blue lights on it. Oh, and I didn't tell you, that's attention. But, you know, I'm a white person. I'm a, I'm a person of privilege, and I, I have not experienced the kind of obstacles that, Black Americans and other people of color have experienced it. Imagine how they feel when law enforcement mm-hmm. is near them. I mean, literally fear for their life. Uh, and so I, I just think this is a time for us as white folks to to not talk so much, but to listen, uh, to listen to the black community and to just try, and that, and that our feelings really don't matter as much, that we need to try to imagine what it's like to be part of a community that for literally for centuries has been subjugated and discriminated and enslaved and, and like tortured and killed. I mean, it's really, uh, you know, hard for us uh, to imagine, uh, but there has to be empathy on all sides. And so just as we need to understand that, you know, if two black Americans are saying, you know, goodbye for the day and they look each other in the eye and they say, be safe because they don't know if they're going to see each other ever again because of this fear, we also have to understand that law enforcement, uh, their job is to kind of run into the danger and uh, that when they leave their loved ones at the beginning of the day, they don't know if they're going to come back. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. there's fear on all sides, and, and mm-hmm. we have to kind of calm that down and come to a sense of understanding. And so, as I said, we've made some progress in Washington, changing the laws to hold law enforcement accountable but to train them better. Uh, and we've given more resources to underrepresented communities, but we have a lot more work to do. Let's take a little bit of a switch here in questioning. Um, because of the COVID virus, which I, I saw a headline the other day, or a little sign that somebody said, do we still have COVID virus? <laughs> 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 um, 
Um, and it's important, I think, to remember that, yeah, we still do have that. Um, but there's been a lot of talk not only about budget and, uh, you know, reopening and all that other stuff. Um, and the conversation is, I'm hearing some legislators calling for a special legislative session. I'm not hearing that there is one going on. I, of course, uh, just as any decision maker is open to wide criticism, I'm hearing lots of criticism of the way that our decision makers are handling the reopening and because of the impact on the economy. And um, Do you think there's going to be a special legislative session? Where does that stand and do we need it? Uh, yes, there is going to be a special legislative session. Uh, it will happen... Uh, at the earliest in August, uh, the earlier the better, because we need to uh, reconcile the numbers here. The the, uh, the budget, which was quite healthy before the pandemic uh, broke out, and, the, and our response is now uh, in a serious deficit situation. Um, we're looking at almost a billion dollars that we're going to need to cut from the current current fiscal year budget. Uh, and then when we get to our regular session next year, it's uh, anywhere between eight and ten billion, uh, eight and ten billion dollars that we're going to have to cut uh, from the budget. So that's about 20 percent, uh, which is worse than the Great Recession uh, 10, 12 years ago. Um, so yeah, for budgetary reasons alone, we need to convene the legislature as soon as possible. Um, some of it is a logistical challenge because the virus is still out there, and we do need to take precautions. So how? Are all of these legislators who meet lots of people during the day from all over the state going to come together in the same physical space? How are we actually going to, going to conduct our business? Uh, but, yes, we are going to have a special session, uh, and we do have to adjust the budget to, uh, you know, to keep things afloat. Uh, what's interesting is that this, uh, the, the virus has broken out in more densely populated areas, which makes sense. And so there is kind of a disconnect in some communities that don't see it as much or hear about it or know anyone who has it where the economy has been just as devastated where they are. And so it's a, a somewhat of a disconnect, and they don't, they don't appreciate it that much. In, in the rural areas, this is nationwide. For every, I believe I saw, for every one person who has the virus, about 25 people are unemployed. Whereas in the urban areas, for every one person who has the virus, about 10 or 11 people are unemployed. Um, so there really is a difference between the rural and the urban areas, which is natural if you think about it, uh, you know, the density of the population. And so it's sort of politically played out differently because of the reaction to the economic consequences. Well, and I think that I think it was Pew Research came out with a study a month or so ago that although obviously there's uh, the, the urban areas are, are the are harder hit by the quantity of uh, victims of the of the disease uh, or of the virus. Um, rural areas are not getting it as much, but when they do get it, it's more fatal. More people are dying, and some of that is because there are older populations in rural areas. Um, I was fortunate enough to be able to interview on the show a couple months ago um, one of the represent rural health representative from the Washington State Hospital Association, and we talked about how accessibility to health care has been an issue because, as you know, we've been consolidating hospital districts, et cetera, et cetera, thinking that, okay, you're, you're a 20-minute hospital a helicopter ride away from the hospital, so that's good enough. That's close. That's good. That'll work, except 
with this kind of a situation, not so much. And right. so they're right. kind of rethinking all of that stuff. So uh, the, the rural areas are definitely being impacted, but in a different way. But it is interesting that the economic situation uh, in the rural areas is, uh, uh, yeah, the whole thing is just mind boggling. Yeah. And I'm sure it will be years before we get a, a firm understanding of what's going on. Yeah. Um, are yeah. you in agreement with uh, the rate at which we're opening up? Again, I've heard criticism that we're opening up too soon, where you know the virus hasn't gone away. Um, yeah. Of course, other people are saying you're killing me with the, uh, you know, I'm going to lose my house, I'm losing this, I'm losing that, and I would take yeah. my chances with the virus before before this. What are your personal feelings on this? Uh, I, it has been hard to be patient with the reopening, and yet I believe we're doing it right. Uh, the, certainly some sectors of the economy have been much more hard hit, particularly the hospitality, travel, and leisure, you know, uh, that's, and that's going to be tough, uh, going to the gym and theaters and concerts and, you know, hair parlors and so forth, any indoor spaces, really. Um, but yes, we are listening to the public health experts, and I believe we should. Um, it, uh, I kind of thought back in March, well, this is going to last till the end of May, this sort of shutdown. And that's pretty much what happened. When June rolled around, we did begin to open, and we are slowly reopening. Uh, and the other thing is to have confidence as we are reopening that we have enough experience as individuals to take the precautions that are necessary. So masks, uh, facial coverings, uh, seem to be really, really important. And so I'm hoping that folks will wear face coverings uh, as a respect to others, uh, primarily. And I am seeing that. Now, I'm in a more urban, uh, you know, sort of a densely populated area in King County, and we are seeing people very much comply with, you know, the public health guidance. But it was tough. It really was tough to hold on and, and keep things uh, shut down, but it was necessary. Um, congregate settings in particular, you know, long-term care facilities, uh, prisons and jails, the meatpacking houses, uh, uh, migrant labor housing, um, homeless shelters, uh, you know, places where people are living closely together were the greatest risk. Um, and then many of those then circulate elsewhere in society and spread very often asymptomatically uh, the virus. Um, we did close the schools down, and so that uh, did prevent students, children, from becoming super spreaders. Uh, so that was important. But you know, we are living with this, and we're going to have to deal with uh, breakouts, and, you know, we're going to have to find ways to isolate and trace and, and bring it under control. But with enough experience now, I'm hoping that we can continue to open up and then, um, uh, you know, hope there's not a big flare-up, uh, as there have been in some of these other states that have opened up too quickly, in Texas and Arizona and Florida and so forth. We've seen it now. Well, I think Oregon, we've done it my right. My daughter lives in Oregon, and... Uh, my daughter lives in Oregon, and they're talking. They opened up a little bit, but now they're talking. Those numbers are going so high. They're they're contemplating closing down again. And I think Arizona just just shut down and went back to a quarantine because of the uh, escalation in the numbers. So yeah, um, in Arizona, they're I mean they're actually threatening hospital capacity. It's that bad in Arizona, and, and yeah. also in New York, particularly in Manhattan and on Long Island, people are not complying with the public health guidance. So they're not wearing face coverings and they're gathering in large groups and and that's unacceptable so one way or the other uh, you know we places might need to shut down again either if people aren't behaving uh, or if they've opened up too quickly do you see uh, again i i have 
um, been hearing different things, different people, depending on their views. They see the, well, in, in fact, there are some lawsuits. They, they see that uh, there was an immediate need, public health crisis, blah, 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 uh, for the government interventions and mandatory quarantine. But there's been two, maybe three lawsuits that have been filed. Of course, no decisions made yet as to the fact or as to the question of whether or not that now that you can no longer make a case for emergency decision making, that that time has passed and now it's time for the government to just say, okay, it's up to individuals to try and take responsibility, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. I'm sure you've heard those arguments. What are, what are your yeah. feelings there? Well, I don't want to second guess uh, a court decision with particular facts and circumstances, but I, I will say that I have legislated uh, in this area. My, I, I chair the Committee on Public Safety, which has jurisdiction over emergency and disaster preparedness and response, including pandemics. Uh, we're, we're concerned about the big earthquakes that's going to happen here, uh, but now we're dealing with the effect of the pandemic. And the governor has broad, very broad emergency powers. Uh, and I've actually amended that particular statute, and I'm familiar with it. And so it's been challenged, and it's, each time it's been unsuccessful uh, because there is a rational basis for the governor to institute the controls he has. Some people are not happy with it. Uh, but as we look back, you know, we're right in the middle of it now. As we look back, we'll realize that to be as conservative as we have been was the right thing to do. Uh, so I don't know, again, any particular court case, you know, how it will – play out, but I, uh, the governor really does have broad, broad powers in, in this, you know, to restrict people's movement uh, and to limit the number of uh, people who can gather together and where they can go and so forth. The only thing the governor does not have uh, the authority, and I, I've, again, legislated on this, is firearms. People have firearms rights, um, and so they can wield weapons anywhere uh, in this state. Uh, and then uh, free speech. Uh, you can't restrict uh, assemblies, even if they might violate these. Uh, you know, and we've seen them. We've seen, obviously, these huge uh, protests uh, for racial justice and then also huge protests uh, by those objecting to the, uh, the shutdown, um, you know, not complying with the public health guidance. But, uh, but it's the First Amendment, and so those can't be restricted. But there are many other restrictions that are possible and that have been implemented. Well, that's interesting because one of the things that I heard from someone, uh, and as long as you're this knowledgeable, I'd love to ask you, uh, the question was, okay, we can't restrict the, the marching and the demonstrations because of First Amendment uh, freedom of speech, and yet we did restrict church services. And that's also it, constitutionally yes. protected thing. And so how, yes. what's the thinking behind that? And so uh, some church services were held nevertheless that violated uh, the guidance uh, but there were no arrests made. Uh, there, there was no law enforcement response. The only legal action that the state has taken for anyone who has violated the governor's order was a landlord who was evicting people. Uh, and uh, that was the only legal action that's been taken. So uh, technically legal action could have been taken in other circumstances, but hasn't been. And so it's really well, uh, the guidance of the governor been. with – with uh, oh, there have been yes, like a, a hair salon and a, a, a couple of isolated. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. That, and that was, uh, you know, I don't know whether that's a legal repercussion. I, I believe yeah. licenses were yeah, no, that's a, and that's things a, like that. It's an enforceable order that was uh, enforced, you know. But uh, yeah, I'm sorry. That that was another 
a small example. I mean, there's violations going on all over the place. The Emergency Operations Center that's been set up down by the, the National Guard post has received probably 80,000 complaints, people calling in about, you know, people not complying with the public health uh, rules. And so they were trying to figure out what, to, what do you do with those, you know. I mean, I guess call back and gently persuade people to, you know, to you, uh, proper physical distancing or the use of protective equipment or whatever. Um, but uh, And I can tell you, on my daily bike rides, I I ride past the volleyball and the basketball courts where they're all over each other, touching the ball and touching yeah. each other. And, you know, and, and so there's only so much you can do. Uh, and uh, But, I, again, it, stepping back sort of in the big picture, I think we've done we've done very well. Well, we can't deny the economic fallout. And one of the things that has been bandied about a lot by um, um, certain legislators is talking about increasing taxes to develop the new capital gains tax, to do that kind of thing. And I have to be honest with you, Representative, when my friends and I and people, you know, even in restaurants or whatever, you know, people that you just talk to and you mention increasing taxes and they go, what? (laughs) What? This is not the time to be increasing any kind of tax. and. I have a friend who is very, uh, I I always get such pleasure out of her because she actually is one of those people that enjoys paying her taxes. She feels she's doing her part, blah, blah, blah. And we were conversing about, well, you know, the the potential increases in taxes that we'll be looking at. And she said, they better not come after my house property taxes. I pay enough. And I thought, whoa, (laughs) if she's upset, you know that people are upset. Even even before this happened. Uh, in our area, we are the highest income, highest value property area in the state. Um, there's very limited appetite for increased taxes anyway, because our property taxes are actually out of proportion to the rest of the state. Um, and then, of course, we're building this uh, trans, you know, this, this light rail network, which is uh, increasing the cost of our vehicle registration and our property taxes and. Uh, and so forth, and uh, we have very high sales taxes. So even before this all happened, uh, there's uh, kind of tax fatigue. So, yeah, in in a time of uh, economic downturn, um, raising taxes is, let's say, a a political challenge, Um, and uh, we do have an upside-down tax system in this state where the, the lowest income pay a very high proportion of their income in taxes, where the highest income pay a very low proportion. We have the second highest regressive tax system in the country. Um, a capital gains tax, for example, really wouldn't help us very much because, first of all, there's not a lot of capital gains at the moment. Second of all, uh, the uh, uh, the um, it's unreliable. Uh, it kind of goes up and down with the economy. So we wouldn't be able to uh, count on a particular amount of revenue from a capital gains, uh, excise tax. Uh, and third, it's going to be challenged in court anyway, so that would delay it. Uh, so I just don't think it's realistic to think that a capital gains tax is useful uh, uh, either you know, politically or practically at the moment. The one thing, though, that we, I want to comment on is that during the Great Recession, we clawed back. Uh, we, you know, we, we had to cut the budget uh, to the bone. Uh, and coming out of the Great Recession, uh, those with assets and those with income uh, did okay, and those without uh, either did worse or are still sort of scraping by. And so I don't want us to come out of this 
making life for those who find it difficult to make ends meet even more difficult. And so that's the challenge. How are we going to support um, the vulnerable? And, uh, you know, the, 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 I don't want to be shredding the safety net. Uh, and so we're going to have to find the resources for that. Also, I don't want to cut back on education, particularly higher education, which is the source of opportunity now in our economy. So we made mistakes in the past. We really slashed higher education and we, we really uh, shredded the safety net for the vulnerable. And so as we cut the budget, we really want to be careful um, uh, moving forward. Uh, and I don't, I don't, I can't you know, comment on any of the details, but those are sort of the themes that we have to hold on to. Uh, we, again, we've, uh, we have been fortunate on this show to have uh, had our state treasurer, Dwayne Davidson, uh, on the show a couple of times. And he seems to have such a sensible approach to my way of thinking. Uh, I mean, before this whole thing started, uh, he was advocating increasing that emergency fund and making sure that we weren't spending that down. And, you know, and basically, just like we try to do in our personal lives. And so I thought he had a great, great approach. And then bingo, you know, like a month after I interviewed him, this all hit. And I went, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> He's a smart guy. Um, <laughs> well, we're, we're uh, in better shape now. Uh, because we call it the budget stabilization account or BSA, but we call it the rainy day fund. Uh, and in the rainy day fund is more than a billion and a half dollars right now. So it is going to save us uh, right now. We're going to be able to, and that's one reason we have to go into a special legislative session is to vote to release the rainy day fund so that we can use that to balance the budget. Um, so, yeah, it, it's very important to, I mean, the, the basic rule is always put away six months to a year in reserves, whatever it is. Uh, and mm -hmm. this was the time to have it, and we're going to be able to use it now. Yes, and I don't think we, I think we had a, a fairly decent rainy day fund, but not an optimal rainy day fund. Um, so hopefully in the future, because uh, I, you know, I mean, we tapped into it on occasion when you could argue that we didn't need to. One of the things that's being talked about a lot is the um, uh, legislative, legislatively uh, approved and scheduled 3% increase for uh, state employees. And I know in, during news conferences, I've heard a couple times they've asked the governor, well, are you going to go ahead with that? Or are you thinking about cutting that back as part of the budget things? And I don't believe he's given us a response yet, and I understand that that's complicated. Um, yeah. But do you have any thoughts on that, that, that uh, increase at this point in time? Is there, yeah, well, we, what, do, what do you think uh, about that? We did suspend that during the Great Recession, and, uh, mm -hmm. and then we restored it. It took a few years. Um, uh, I, my impression is that it's not sustainable at this time. It is up to the governor who negotiates with the public uh, unions. Uh, but uh, where everybody else isn't getting a raise, uh, it might be the time that we uh, suspend that for everybody. Yeah, and a time when a lot of people are just happy to have a job still. Um, it, yeah, the, I mean, it, it you, would, you name it, wherever you go, it's, uh, mm. it's, uh, it's yeah. the most, and most of course, difficult time. Yeah, 3% doesn't sound very big, but, you know, by the time you add it all up, who, who was it that said, you know, a billion here, a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking about real money? Um <laughs> It's, it's more than a billion dollars. Yeah, it's more than a billion dollars. Yeah. So that's it's a significant yeah. amount of the budget. It's a time of belt tightening. Um, yeah. One, yeah. You had uh, alluded to school in the fall. Do you think there's going to be a return to school in the fall? Maybe uh, a, a lot of the things that I've heard from folks about uh, work 
is maybe we won't return to going to the office everybody every day. Maybe what we'll do is we'll have the reduced workforce and you go in two days a week with the reduced workforce and then the other ones can go in two days a week and that kind of thing and, and continue with the remote working as much as possible. Of course, there's limited numbers of our worker workforce who can actually do that. Um, but I have also heard that uh, concept might be what we do in the fall with school. Have you heard anything about that or have any thinking uh, about that? I, uh, have, I'm not on the task force on the return to school, but I, um, I think that's probably what we're going to see, sort of a hybrid model. We, we are going to open the schools in the fall, uh, and for, you know, the, the necessary precautions are going to be taken. But now I have a middle schooler. I have a, he's going into eighth grade, and I have a high schooler. She's going into 12th grade. So uh, on the one hand, I do have to say that the remote learning or distance learning experience um, has not been very fulfilling. Uh, uh, a lot of learning was missed. Um, the option of getting an A or an incomplete, uh, those are the only possible grades, uh, did not incentivize mm-hmm. students to try as hard as they could. Um, and, uh, you know, being at home uh, with all sorts of other distractions, uh, you know, so uh, we, we really are, have seen some gaps in learning during this period. So I do think mm-hmm. it's important physically to open the schools, but, you know, we're going to have to be safe. But as you say, just as in the working world, we're going to have some people in the workplace and some people still at home, we may figure out a way there to cycle students through so that maybe half the population is in the building at one time, separated by plexiglass and, you know, not eating Mm -hmm. uh, lunch in the cafeteria, all sitting next to each other and and so forth, and rapid, uh, you know, frequent cleaning of touch surfaces. I mean, it's going to be quite a challenge, but I really do think we need to open up the schools physically to uh, return a sense of normality to the community, if anything, because school, you know, when school is open, it really helps, uh, you know, bring the pulse back to the community. Uh, and so this is well, a very unusual time. Parents who rely on schools, uh, you know, for, uh, for lack of a better term, their daycare, you know, for part, a large portion of their daycare. Um, yeah. You know, if, if you don't have a place to put your child, and you, then you can't go to work. And if you can't go to work, well, then everything is exacerbated. So schools yeah. obviously are about education, but it's also that experience that helps parents. And help, it, it just helps everything get back to normal and move yeah. smoothly. In, yeah, in I do want to comment on, uh, on daycare. Uh, this is taken for granted. The uh, daycare um, centers, um, uh, particularly the home-based daycare centers, have just been devastated uh, because they're mm-hmm. on tight margins and having to close uh, up to 50% of them are not going to be able to reopen. I just can't do it. And so without enough daycare, high, you know, good quality daycare, uh, people are not going to be able to go back to work uh, enough. So this mm-hmm. is a something that we need to focus on as we reopen is to make sure that there's sufficient, uh, uh, you know, daycare out there. Right. Well, and I think that the, the, the thing that we have to understand is that, well, you know, I'm not going to go there. Never mind. <laughs> but I think that the whole idea, I mean, we're, we are not little separate segments of society. We all function together like a number of gears. And when one of those gears isn't working, it affects many, many other gears. And if we right. want things to get back to to some sort of normal, whatever that new normal we're calling it is, I think yeah. we have to understand that 
you know, that includes our children and where they go and what they're doing. So that's my rant. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll step down from my soapbox now. Well, um, no, <laughs> uh, on a macro level, uh, globally, in terms of the, how the economy works, this pandemic and its response has interrupted supply chains across the world. And so mm-hmm. we're not going to be able to ramp up uh, commercial business, industrial activity as quickly because those supply chains have been broken. Uh, so it's a similar thing. We're talking about all the gears working together. The entire economy needs to be kind of reconstructed. Uh, other than the uh, – uh, and we are lucky in this area. We have high tech. We have information technology. We have telecommunications. We have life sciences. A lot of it is computer-based where people can remain home, where they can remain productive uh, because they're operating, you know, with – uh, uh, you know, computer technology. So we're a little bit buffered from the effects that are happening nationally and globally uh, in our area because of the, the intense focus of uh, high technology industries. So, uh, but in general, yeah, this is going to take quite a while for us to uh, to come back from. Well, and I think the other thing that we need to recall, or at least be aware of, is because we are so intensely, you know, um, technologically advanced or we use it so much out here, I was reading, it may not be specific to this region, but I was reading that only 30% of our workforce actually can work remotely. That's not a large percentage of our workforce, and yet almost all of the plans that we're making, almost all of the decisions that we make, all of is geared to those who can work remotely. Right. Um, We forget about all that. There are certain sectors, as I said, the hospitality uh, sector in particular, Mm -hmm. Uh, is really going to, uh, they've suffered and many won't be able to make it back. Even like the the, the famous chefs uh, in Seattle with their fancy restaurants might not be able to make it back, you know. So uh, the large segment of society and those who work, you know, sort of day-to-day work uh, for wages, um, you know, s- subsisting uh, without any savings uh, in those industries, are going to be really, really hard hit. Uh, one other thing is about unemployment. We've seen um, about a billion and a half individual claims for unemployment insurance in this. I'm sorry, a million and a half, a million and a half uh, people, uh, and about uh, 800 or 900 thousand claims have been satisfied. But about four or five hundred thousand have not, for one reason or another, either bureaucratic or because of fraudulent uh, unemployment insurance claims, uh, which has uh, diverted hundreds of millions of dollars uh, fraudulently away. So this huge crush of unemployment uh, claims, I don't fault this department for not being able to handle it. It's literally 10 times as much as they've ever experienced in history. Uh, But that's made it so difficult for people who, and I, as a as a state legislator, on a daily basis, are getting dozens of people contacting me saying, "Please help! I, you know, I'm a really? single person, and, <laughs> and I'm, yeah, and I, uh, I can't manage the system, and I'm being told I go on the phone for hours, and I've emailed, and I don't get a response, and so uh, this is uh, my major job. All of my my trusty staff is helping, so." Uh, this is uh, something that maybe a lot of people aren't necessarily aware of, but it's uh, it's a major crisis for many people. Yeah. 
One of the things that really irritates me, not just about unemployment, because I am involved in that whole thing right now, uh, as you well know, uh, because I reached yeah. out to you for, for, for help, you know. Yeah. Uh, but what, yeah, I'm, I'm one of those that didn't get processed. Mar- maybe this is because I'm in an older generation, or maybe it's just because I'm cranky or whatever, but it seems to me that when you have something major like this happening, of course you want to process. Of course you want to hire people who can get those papers pushed through. Of course you want to do that. But it seems to be that the very first decision is, okay, if we're going to have all these people pushing the papers, then we can't have anybody to answer questions or respond to emails or to answer a phone. We'll cut all that off, which is yeah. what unemployment did. Yeah. I would yeah, suggest the opposite. I think people would be more patient and more understanding of the amount of time it takes to process if they have a human being to communicate with. Yeah. yeah. Is that just be... me being an old, old, an old grump? Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I mean, again, the problem is, uh, I guess, if there are three to 400,000 people, literally, uh, you know, 400,000 people who are all calling at the same time, it's, you know, there's not, there's not the capacity uh, to handle that. I mean, perhaps there could have been some, I don't know, some public service or, you know, a recording or something explaining what was going on, mm-hmm. but... Uh, it's just unprecedented this uh, this crush mm-hmm. of the need, you know, and so uh, it's been a very very difficult situation. My experience is that people can handle anything as long as they know they're not abandoned and hanging in the wind. Um, yeah, yeah. So we can some, write some sort of assurance. Down, you you let yeah. you you can write that down and tell the people at unemployment, okay? That Heather okay, said. Okay, okay, I'll um, pass on the message. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> but I do think that that human component is really important. Yes. Um, One of the things that I also wanted to ask you about is nonprofit organizations. Gosh, Mm -hmm. a lot of them are hurting. A lot of them are not, but a lot of them are. Yeah, yeah. What's your view, your advice, your observations about nonprofit businesses in this this era? Well, nonprofit businesses depend on fundraising, uh, and uh, fundraising has – for two reasons, uh, ground to a halt. One is there's not the resources there because people are struggling. And the second is that fundraising normally takes place in person at a banquet or, you know, lunch or breakfast or dinner or a gala or whatever. And uh, so a lot of these sort of online uh, banquets <laughs> have taken place and not just not bringing in the funding that these organizations need. Um, I suppose the organizations have to figure out how to, um, you know, pare back their their staff uh, to survive. Um, and some are longstanding organizations, but I think just like for-profit organizations, the nonprofits uh, have suffered as well. I, I mean, it, it's uh, I haven't looked too in too much detail into the nonprofit sector, but I know that everybody's hurting, and uh, everybody's going to have to to fight to get back to normal again. One other question. I know you've uh, received a Breaking Barriers Award from the Disabilities Rights Washington organization. For those with disabilities, do you think they're facing even more difficulties right now? Do you think that there are resources still available when the government looks at uh, cutting things? Are they going to probably, I mean, it seems reasonable to assume that everybody's going to lose about 20%. Uh, why should one cause or... or uh, problem be more significant than another. Um, but what about disability, uh, those with disabilities right now in our state? Yeah, I, uh, 
as I said, I don't believe that we should be cutting everything equally across the board. I think that we need to look after the most vulnerable first, uh, and uh, and those with disabilities. Uh, actually, <laughs> one thing some people don't realize is that uh, wearing a facial covering is sometimes disabling uh, for people, and so they make themselves even more vulnerable uh, and maybe can't be in public as much. Uh, something as simple as that uh, people don't necessarily think about. But um, those with disabilities and those who are at risk uh, in general uh, are much more vulnerable now because we don't have person-to-person -person services. You know, we have, uh, you know, a, a lot of um, children are being neglected and abused, but we don't know about it because we don't have counselors and teachers and others with eyes on them to make sure that they're kept safe. Uh, we, uh, uh, and those who need uh, behavioral health uh, care, mental health and substance use addiction treatment, are not getting it because the person-to-person -person services are suspended now. Uh, and, and people with disabilities, the same, same thing. Those who need special help, particularly students in school with special education needs, have really suffered more than the other students because they need that individualized person-to-person -person attention. Uh, so any of those who are vulnerable in our community uh, who need uh, you know, the personal care have suffered more than most. No, I think that's very uh, astute of you. Uh, we're coming up toward the end of the, the clock, and I want to ask you about your reelection. not because I necessarily want to talk about politics, but I know that there are restrictions for running um, under ordinary circumstances of what you can do when you're, when you're running for reelection. Are there additional prohibitions, additional factors, because of our social upheaval right now or because of the COVID drivers that you are facing as you uh, forge your campaign? Well, ordinarily, I go out into the neighborhoods and I visit, you know, 10,000 houses personally. I'll go up to the door, ring the bell, and greet the voter, shake the voter's hand, look the voter in the face, and we have a good conversation. And I'm out there for five, six months going to 60, 70, 80 doors a day. Uh, and I love it because it's actually part of the job to know what's going on in the neighborhoods, to know about that uh, that new uh, uh, condo development that's causing erosion in, in the neighborhood, or to know about the new principal at the high school who's terrific, or you know, just or to see that across the street there's no sidewalk for the kids to walk safe, safely to school. We have to do something about it. It's important to be out there and to to listen to people in the neighborhoods to know, you know, to sort of put your finger on the pulse. Well, I can't do that now. You can't. It's, it would be, uh, it would be, uh, you know, insensitive, uh, inconsiderate for me to show up at somebody's door, even if I'm standing six feet away with a mask on, which is kind of, uh, you know, somehow difficult. <laughs> when, when you're you know. when you're a stranger ringing someone's doorbell, it's never a good look to be having a mask on. It yeah, just, it just mean, is not a good look. <laughs> people are used to masks, but just I just don't think I'm going to be received very well. Uh, you know, ringing somebody's doorbell and showing up. Uh, and so we're going to have to figure out more innovative ways to contact the voters, whether it's through email or uh, electronic means or phone calls. And, and we're working on that right now. Uh, I am running for my eighth term, so I've already served 14 years in the legislature and feel like I maybe have a little bit of name recognition and I hope uh, a body of accomplishment that 
sort of fits uh, what the people of the area wanted me to, uh, you know, to, to do for them. Um, I do try to be as responsive uh, as possible. So uh, right now I, I'm busy uh, handling the needs of constituents. Um, so, in fact, maybe that'll end up rewarding me in the election just for do, doing my job. But, yeah, this, <laughs> this is a challenge unlike anything ever before where a physical campaign is literally not possible uh, or advisable. And so we'll, we'll figure out a way to get the, the message out to the voters. Representative Goodman, I often ask people, as I come to the end of an interview, I've tried to be knowledgeable and uh, ask questions that reflect our community's interests. Is there something that you would like to share that I did not ask you about? No, this has been terrific. I really appreciate the opportunity, um, a very wide-ranging uh, discussion with all sorts of issues. Uh, I guess uh, I'll just conclude by saying that I care most about uh, the safety of our communities, um, and so that's, of course, a public health concern right now, but also just working to make sure that people are safe in their homes, uh, you know, working a lot to reduce the harm from domestic violence and sexual assault, uh, working to make sure that people are safer on the roadways, uh, drunk driving is a perpetual problem, uh, that people are safe in public places so that we have a thriving civil society. Uh, if we all get back into public spaces again, uh, and then more than anything else, to make sure that children are taken care of, that they're well-fed and housed, uh, and that they are ready for success in school. Uh, that's, those are the, the issues that I've been working on. Our area is, um, is quite affluent. We have a very highly educated uh, population that's, uh, you know, they, they earn a considerably higher amount than most areas in, in the state and in the country. And because they're well-educated, they have a very strong social conscience, and that's my uh, guide. I, I act to satisfy the social conscience of the area to be um, sort of a voice for the voiceless, fighting for foster kids, uh, fighting for the rights of prisoners, uh, fighting for animals, animal rights, uh, fighting to make sure that our natural resources and our environmental, uh, environmentally sensitive areas are protected, sort of a... Uh, I, I try to fight for those who don't have a lot of high-paid lobbyists at the uh, at the doors of the House chamber. You know, uh, trying to trying to uh, you know uh, put their interests forward. So um, it's a great pleasure and an honor uh, to serve this area because uh, I have flexibility where the population is generally self-sufficient um, to fight for the less vul uh, the, the more vulnerable uh, and uh, try to improve conditions for everyone. Well, thank you for that. You mentioned earlier in our conversation that um, any disagreements, any uh, social justice activities, etc., movement has to show empathy on all sides. And I wrote that down because I thought, I think I see that eroding, and I have for quite some time. So when you mention that you work toward having a civil society, I believe that we can also translate that into working for a civil conversation and exchange of ideas. Am I right there? Uh, absolutely. We, uh, it's important for people to disagree because out of that comes something better. Uh, as long as the disagreement is uh, conducted in an agreeable manner. Uh, and so what I like to say is uh, the butt that I kick today, I'm going to have to kiss tomorrow. And so we all better <laughs> get along. 
you know, it's important <laughs> to find a c- common interests and, and find what we can agree on because we're, ha- we're going to have to work together. Uh, and bringing people together to solve problems, I think, is what uh, government is about. And so that's kind of how I try to conduct my business. Well, thank you. I, and I am scrambling to write down. I wrote down that we have to have empathy on all sides. Now I'm writing down the butt I kicked today. Well, okay. All right. I'll, I'll keep that <laughs> nugget. Um, <laughs> thank you for that because uh, that sure. is so, so true. Uh, Representative, thank you so much for coming on the show with us. I'm hopeful that when you are um, preparing maybe for that legislative se- special session in August or maybe, you know, it's hard to find time during the session, I know, but at some point around there, I would hope that you'd get back to us, give us some information about what's going on there, and keep us informed. And uh, sure. we always want to see you in the Duval area. Great. I love it out in the Valley, and any, any opportunity to come out here. Okay. And right okay. before we wrap up, uh, would you please give your email or your uh, preferred contact information for people who need to contact their representative? Sure. Uh, my legislative uh, email address is roger.goodman, so R-O-G-E-R dot G-O-O-D-M-A-N, roger.goodman, at ledge.wa.gov, so that's L-E-G dot W-A dot G-O-V. That's the legislative uh, email, roger.goodman at ledge.wa.gov. Okay. Representative, thank you so much for for joining us today. I look forward to talking with you again. Thank you for listening to Valley Talk on Valley 104.9 FM. You're listening to Valley 104.9 FM. Your station for Valley Talk and Info. Welcome to Happy News. I'm Daisy Oz. In this episode, I'll be presenting the heart's intelligence. The heart has been considered the source of emotion, courage, and wisdom for centuries. For more than 28 years, the HeartMath Institute has explored the physiological mechanisms by which the heart and brain communicate and how the activity of the heart influences our perceptions, emotions, intuition, and health. They say we are at the dawn of recognizing love as the new transformational intelligence. HeartMath presents new studies showing that the human heart is much more than an efficient pump that sustains life. They say heart activity affects mental clarity, creativity, emotional stability, intuition, and personal resilience, which in turn allows for balance in relationships, health, and overall happiness. Most of us have been taught in school that the heart is constantly responding to orders sent by the brain. However, it is not commonly known that the heart actually sends more signals to the brain than the brain sends to the heart. These heart signals affect the brain, influencing emotions and higher cognitive faculties such as attention, perception, memory, and problem solving. In other words, not only does the heart respond to the brain, but the brain continuously responds to the heart. The heart is a highly complex information processing center with its own brain called the heart brain, which influences the cranial brain mainly via the nervous system, which plays a pivotal role in having positive or negative emotional experiences. During stress and negative emotions, when the heart rhythm pattern is erratic, the pattern of neural signals traveling from the heart to the brain inhibits higher cognitive functions. 
This limits our ability to think clearly, remember, learn, reason, and make effective decisions. In contrast, the more ordered and stable pattern of the heart's input to the brain during positive emotional states has the opposite effect. It facilitates cognitive function and reinforces positive feelings and emotional stability. Adding our heart's love to our daily activities and connections produces measurable benefits to our own and others' well-being. Find out more in the research library at heartmath.org. I'd like to leave you with a happy heart quote. The happy heart runs with the river, floats on the air, lifts to the music, soars with the eagle, hopes with the prayer. Maya Angelou I'm Daisy Oz. Thanks for listening. And I want you to be happy. Check out my archive shows and more at daisyoz.com. Happy News is produced at Daisy Oz Productions in Chewila, Washington. My theme music was provided by John Bartman.